Welcome to Playground Books, essays revisiting the stories I first read as a kid and loved enough to spend my recesses reading. What made you who you are? In some way, that's the question I've been trying to answer in the last nine, now ten, episodes of this podcast. Because my response, in some way, has to involve books. The books I read as a kid, the worlds I preferred, the friends I could finally make, and the adventures I wanted to claim. What made you who you are? Was it creasing your knees around the parallel bars in the playground of a private school, getting that grit from mulch in between the pages of the chapter book in your hand? Was it balancing a hardback on the metal X beneath your assigned seat, proud that your pick for silent reading time couldn't fit inside the desk? Was it those conversations with people you no longer speak to? Swapping recommendations like vital organs, comparing favorite characters, favorite scenes, the wild puzzles of how stories fit together, and the fire you were set alight with in figuring them out. Was it the same path of carpet that you took in the library? One of the only places where you would leave your mom's side as soon as the sliding doors opened to greet you. Making that beeline every time to first check the top corner of the first shelf for a new entry in the series you loved. Was it wondering, just maybe, if you shut yourself in a cupboard beneath the stairs and turned out the light, would a rainbow staircase appear, leading you into a place where you could become who you could be? The Secrets of Drune was one of those series for me that was being released as I read it, but also with the exact timing that I aged out just before the final installments either because they weren't picked up immediately by my library, or just that a year is a long time when you're nine. While looking through plot synopses, I'm pretty sure I only missed out on the last few books, although it gets tricky to keep track with the special editions. This is particularly funny in retrospect, because one of the last books I remember reading ended on a cliffhanger with the main character turning evil, but I don't know, I guess that just happens sometimes. Across this podcast, one thing that kind of disrupted my expectations is the huge discrepancy between books that all reside in a similar place in my head. Books I read in elementary school, or even books I read in middle school, covers an enormous variance from early reader chapter books to heavy, multiple hundred-page novels, and light adventuring tone to let's think about death, children! For context, I was reading the tail end of Droon at the same time as I was reading Harry Potter. Like, the later Harry Potter books that got shelved as a young adult and that I was probably actually too young for. But both of those series are lodged in my brain as inseparable influences on my love of fantasy and adventure. All that is to say, it's important to come to these books as they are. I reread the first book in The Secrets of Droon, The Hidden Stairs and the Magic Carpet, in maybe 20 minutes. The nature of the book is to be a quick-paced adventure. There isn't much time for sitting around and thinking, nor for lengthy imagery or letting the magic impact the characters. We're speed-running through epiphanies that a fantastical world exists in this kid's basement, and there are wizards and monsters and evil sorcerers, and you have to learn it all on your feet. So when you do get introduced to an entire world of lore and take on three quests and find yourself in the middle of a decades-old war and wrap everything up to go home in 20 minutes, I will say the pacing? Slightly quick. But that's not an accident. These books are snappy and attention-grabbing and the kind of stories that ask you to finish them by saying one more chapter, one more chapter. The barrier for suspension of disbelief is on the floor, which is where we want it. 
In more quote-unquote serious books and movies, suspension of disbelief can be a significant struggle in whether or not the story works for the audience. It refers to the reader's ability to go along with the unrealistic elements in a story, whether that be magic existing, or abbreviated travel times, or the convenience of two characters running into each other just when the plot needs them to. When the reader's suspension of disbelief is lost, the fun goes out of the story, because all you can see is the hand of the author shuffling pieces around, poking buttons to vainly make you feel tension or heartbreak or excitement. We can see the actors standing on a soundstage, not the characters in a different world. But in a similar way to animated movies, the medium shapes the message here. I'm not screaming plot hole at how the evil sorcerer found the protagonist's lost soccer ball because the friend we just met is a spider with a human's head and that's rad. For example, if you're watching The Lion King, you can enjoy the musical numbers without balking at the sudden technicolor tower of dancing animals. The cinematic language of the movie means even something so unrealistic is included in your suspension of disbelief. Incidentally, this is why the live-action remakes don't work. For a prime irony, live-action squeezes the life out of a story when it depends so deeply on the whimsy and exaggeration of animation. This is why I don't believe animated movies and children's chapter books like Droon are inherently less worthy than grimdark, grown-up, inscrutable media. There are different strengths being prized between them. But in keeping with my source material, I'm going to give you the plot summary in the same ruthlessly high-octane and rapidly-paced style, all in under one minute. Here we go. Three friends, Eric, Julie, and Neil, had to clean Eric's basement, but their soccer ball bounces into the cupboard under the stairs, and when the door shuts, a rainbow staircase appears leading down into the sky of a hidden world. They go down to see what's what, but it disappears out from under them and dumps them into a forest. Eric meets Kia, who's a princess and a wizard, and getting chased by comically evil fish fins on the side of his face, Lord Spar, and his flying groggles and nins, which are basically dragons and orcs. She gives him a message for gay and long beard and runs off. Eric reunites with Julie and Neil, and they go find Galen, who's a 500 year old wizard living in an invisible tower with a spider troll named Max and a six legged white haired camel named Leap. With his magic mirror, they see that Lord Spar is attacking Zorfendorf Castle and Jaffa City, and Princess Key is being held prisoner in the Fortress of Blood. Also, Galen explains Spar is looking for one of three objects of unimaginable power so he can take over the world. It's called the Red Eye Dawn, and he thinks Kia has it. Galen heads to Jaffa City, the kids ride off to rescue Kia, they sneak inside the fortress and free her, but get stopped by Spar, who knows all about them because he found their lost soccer ball and you know magic. He takes her red eye down from Kia, which she had the whole time, disguised as a gift from her dead, but maybe not mother. Spider Troll Max swabs up the guards and he'll kick Spar in the head with a soccer ball and they steal a flying carpet and escape. Kia leads them to where the magic stairs have respawned and they go home and still have to clean the basement because it's only been 10 minutes. Whew. Well, that was exhausting. Feel free to rewind. Okay, so one thing you may get the impression of in that synopsis is the broad expanse of the world of Droon. From the ice hills of Terabat to the fortress in the forbidden city of Plud, there are centuries of history and civilization here that only barely get name-checked, with the narration feeling no obligation to explore or even really explain the details of all these places right up front. This is another way the suspension of disbelief either comes into effect or is shaken here, depending on your perspective. Yes, you could think that the details aren't given because the author hasn't thought them all out, but in another light, we don't pause to give context because for the inhabitants of Droon, all these cities and creatures are normal. 
You're not going to get a history of New York or a precise visualization of the habits of a house cat in a nonfiction book, so when Galen and Kia don't offer such descriptions here, the reader is encouraged to simply accept as fact all they say. Across the rest of the series, which is 44 volumes in total, Eric, Julie, and Neil get the chance to explore the far reaches of the world, visiting many more varied locations and even hinted in this first installment. This adventure is truly only the beginning, and it's already a hit of pure fantasy to be plunged in deep to the magic of Droon. But the other big talking point for this series is the tropes it invokes. Trope is a word that gets thrown around a lot in discussions of media, usually with a negative connotation and frequently as a synonym for cliché, neither of which are fully deserved or accurate. Tropes are conventions, themes, devices and images in the broadest sense of all those terms, used in literary works with the intent of being recognizable to the audience. In thinking back to the discussion of the Chronicles of Narnia a few episodes ago, I identified steps of the hero's journey by recognizing specific metaphors, turns of the plot, and character archetypes. Those pieces are tropes. They're literary heuristics, shortcuts, and common reference that make stories intelligible. This can be as broad as a damsel in distress, or as specific as a character whom the author wants you to think is cool wearing a long coat. A truly unique story, meaning one of a kind in the real definition of unique, would not actually be fun to read, because it would be so unfamiliar that the emotions and narrative would feel inaccessible to any audience who isn't the author. Comparative literary theory, as a whole, relies on tropes. They're basically the ingredients of a book, if you could sometimes manipulate the inherent essence of your eggs and flour to make them react differently in the oven. All literature has tropes, even the literary literature that pretends to be above it all but they're especially important in genre fiction. Droon is stuffed with them. For the obvious ones in this first book, we've got Kia as a warrior princess, an evil overlord with an evil lair, a main trio of heroes composed of two guys and a girl, wizened sorcerer and mentor figure Galen, and the Red Eye of Dawn is an ultimate MacGuffin. If you really want to have fun with it, you can start breaking down the common elements between the secrets of Droon and Harry Potter. Which does start to feel a little fishy, considering Sorcerer's Stone came out just a couple of years before The Hidden Stairs and the Flying Carpet. But our trio of heroes? Practical girl, best friend who's always eating, and main character wizard boy with dark hair and circular glasses. The journey starts out in a cupboard under the stairs, and the first book focuses on an evil guy who goes by the title Lord, trying to steal a red rock with supernatural powers. I'm not even trying here. Obviously, these are two different books, with vastly different plots, vastly different story structures, and even debatably different audiences, though as mentioned before I was in the middle of that Venn diagram. But they have these elements in common because tropes are the tools of literature, and when we recognize them we can start to tease out why they work, what's the reason behind them, that being cultural or metatextual or the rule of cool. Tropes aren't inherently bad. They're not a symptom of weak writing or even an indicator that a story's been done before. But they do reveal the common language of storytelling, which I find endlessly fascinating. An excellent website that you can really waste time on in a way that feels like research is TV Tropes, which is a wiki that has systematically and thoroughly cataloged basically every trope you've ever heard of that appears in basically any piece of media you've ever heard of. Just Go there, click the random trope button, and be prepared to think, oh yeah, I have seen that in all these places, no matter how specific or odd the example is. 
Next, I do want to talk about these characters some. They are all incredibly flat in this book. Really, I can tell you so little about each of them. Um, Neil likes soccer and making awkward jokes. Leap seems to like him. Julie is a little braver than the others because she's the one who convinces them to shut the closet door and turn off the light to find the stairs. And she's also a little more sensible and practical when going about their adventure. Eric is good-hearted and reasonably smart and idiotically trusting of people he met five minutes ago, but that last part may have more to do with the just roll with it plot. Honestly, that's about as much as I can say. When there's no internal narration and reflection, and also no time for the characters to sit around and have extended reactions and discussions about the events, there's not a lot of opportunity for well-rounded characterization. But remember, there's 43 more books where this one came from. And what's most interesting is the development of these characters across the series, in the sense of what they become. Often when we're talking about character development, we're talking about switches. In Pride and Prejudice, Darcy is arrogant and prideful, and at Elizabeth Bennet's strong urging, he undergoes some character development to become humble and selfless. Ebenezer Scrooge turns from a greedy, hateful Scrooge into a guy who knows the true meaning of Christmas. In these two cases, the character is fully realized both at the beginning and the end of their arc. You may not like them, but you can still imagine them as real people rather than cardboard cutouts. But another form of character development, particularly across long-running installments like Drune, occurs when a character gradually turns from an ill-defined, vaguely protagonist-shaped thing into a compelling actor in the story. This happens when they start to take agency, when they have to face real difficulties and have reactions that aren't just defaults, and when, to put it simply, they just have more to them. Eric, Julie, and Neil grow into the adventures they're having. Their development signified, and maybe shortcut, by the magical power-ups they unlock. Eric is first, discovering he has wizardly powers and training to use them. And toward the end of the series, he has a multi-book arc combating an evil manifestation of himself and losing. Julie gains the ability to fly and shapeshift after being scratched by a wing wolf, and Neil becomes a genie when he commits a truly selfless act. And although there's also some time-traveling closed-loop shenanigans going on, the level of responsibility that comes with this would never have been expected of him early on in the series. All in all, there's a prompting to look back at this first entrance into Drune from a perspective later on, and think, look how far they've come. In one of my arguably favorite books, High Wizardry by Diane Duane, there's a moment that confronts the desire of adventure, specifically, adventure of the kind that makes you a protagonist. The main character is an impulsive young girl who awakens enormous magic power within herself and takes off across the universe, seeking monsters, and doesn't slow down until she's more than 11 light years from home. She gets overwhelmed in an alien airport and finally pauses to make some plans for this trip she's taking. In the following conversation, her sentient computer, the conduit for her wizardry, prompts her to list the parameters for the type of world she wants to go to. She says she wants to go somewhere with people, somewhere she has time to figure out her wizardry, somewhere where she's expected. Quote, somewhere. One more time she stopped, considering the wild number of possibilities she was going to have to specify. And the truth was, she didn't know what she was after. Except. She looked around her conspiratorially. 
as if someone might overhear her. Indeed, she would have died if, say, her sister should ever hear this. Somewhere I can do something, she whispered. Something big. Something that matters. Noted, said the computer. Next argument. So, because Drune is a children's fantasy series, there is a prophecy of some variety, which the three kids theorize refers in part to the three of them. As chosen ones, and considering the magical and royal titles they're granted across the series, you could call all this wish fulfillment. Similar to the broader idea of tropes, wish fulfillment is a go-to insult that sticks to genre fiction and fantasy in particular like a magnet. But there's a kind of undeserving that's implied along with the phrase. These are normal kids, and they'd never be able to do anything big, anything that matters, so let's throw them a bone, let them blind themselves with escapism. But the quote from High Wizardry expresses this type of plot in a different way. It's more than wishing without consequences. Instead, there's a yearning to be significant, a request to be entrusted with a problem that you can risk yourself in solving, so that you can believe your efforts are not meaningless. Especially as kids, don't we all want to do something? Something big? Something that matters? Across the course of The Secrets of Drune, Julie, Neil, and Eric all realize that there is a role waiting for them in this new world. Titles and powers that reflect their own significance. And I remember feeling, even as a kid, vivid jealousy of that. So don't come in here with wish fulfillment as a derogation of children's literature when it's hitting on such a deep and complex resonance. <music> Lastly, in the category of characters, I have to touch on Kia, who really is the fourth main character, and let's be honest, much cooler than our upper world point of view kids. Like them, real characterization is thin on the page for Kia, but much more is implied even from this brief start. Of course, she's intensely capable, with magic abilities both to heal and to fight, and experience in this bizarre realm that is her home. But as Galen says to the kids, You have entered a troubled world, my young friends. Drune is a troubled world that Kia is not afraid to take her place in as princess, but also as a fighter on the front lines of a wizardly struggle. She is confident in herself, but more so than that, aware of her responsibility. Also, she's just a really fun role model for girls because she never waits around for the guy heroes. There's a specific scene from one of the later books that I still remember where Eric has some prophetic dream, which is a big thing across the series, and believes he's going to save Princess Kia when she's in danger, but then the danger comes, and instead, she's the one who saves him, which he's pretty flummoxed by. Kia and our main trio are emblematic of the themes in the Droom books, those being courage in the face of evil and in the face of the unknown, willingness to seek growth when confronted with challenges and with gifts, and the bravery required for exploration, but also the fantastical rewards that come along with it. I started out with a disclaimer about the scope and scale of Drune because I don't want you to think I'm holding up a book at a first grade reading level as a revolutionary masterpiece of literature. I'm not. But there's a way to value books like these, by understanding the confines of their form without making assumptions that sweep aside their nuance. 
no, we're not here to be shattered by metaphor and astounded by interwoven plot lines. But also, if you say, oh, it's good for a kid's book, then I'm going to request you take it from the top. I haven't completely enamored myself, I promise. I go back and forth on the virtue of nostalgia. And that's why I've hoped to bring a certain academically-minded perspective to analysis of these titles that I've covered, showing how there is fertile ground for discussion and scrutiny through the lenses of literary criticism, even in paperbacks that we give to children to read on the playground. But I also wanted to express a little of what these books meant and mean to me these fragments of remembered stories that form my foundation. In the first episode, I said that we all have a little solipsism in us until we grow out of it. To save you from reading Descartes, what I meant by this is that when you can only truly be certain of your own mind, which is true from a certain philosophical angle, everything else may as well not exist. I read these books as a kid. They were mine. These worlds, these characters, these ideas, they existed because I read them and thought about them, and they only existed in my reading and thinking. There's a comfort to that idea of ownership and power and belonging. But at some point, it also becomes a rather unproductive way of existing. Yeah, that's right, Descartes, I said it. When you are limited to yourself, you may contain an infinity but that infinity is still bounded. So I guess part of this project has been motivated by my rejection of solipsism, to prove to myself that there is more meaning to be found and shared than only that which I've made and held. So on that note... The music is by David Hillowitz. The books are by Tony Abbott. The opinions are by me. Thank you for listening. <laughs>